Well, good morning again. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We are going to be reading from Luke chapter 2 this morning. And thinking of the Christmas time and the Christmas spirit, there are many, many powerful ironies in the Christmas story, aren't there? It's just ironic. Some would call it oxymoron that Creator God becomes a man, or that a virgin gives birth, or that Jesus was born to die. And these powerful ironies are meant to grab our attention and to bring us into the Christmas story. And every Christmas season, we read the famous words of the angels on the night that Jesus was born. In Luke chapter 2, in verse 14, the angels join the heavenly host, that army, praise God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's wonderful. It's the Christmas story. But peace on earth? Has, has anybody felt like there's peace on earth? You know, if, if you, thank you, yeah, no, there are some no's out there. If, if you looked up the most searched Google, uh, the most popular Google searches of 2022, the number two result is election results, and number six is Ukraine. Or if you look at current events, they're number one and, and three. National unrest and international war. Those are the most, po most popular searches, and, and people are a lot more honest with Google than they are at church. You'll, 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 you don't mind searching for things uh, when you're curious. And so, do we have peace on earth? Is there really peace on earth? On earth? Surely you've seen the peace sign before, the classic peace sign, uh, that symbol. Uh, but did you know that's not a very old symbol? It's not old at all. As a matter of fact, it was designed in 1958 by a guy named Gerald. Yeah, he designed it. Uh, he designed it for uh, the British campaign for nuclear disarmament back in 1958. And uh, the the reason why he designed it this way is he used semo semaphore flag signals. If you if you know what that is. Uh, the two line. I put a picture of there just to just so you would see. Uh, there's flag signals that represent numbers and, and letters, and so the two on the side represent the letter N, and the one in the middle represents the letter D, and so it stands for nuclear disarmament. And the circle is meant to be the Earth. And the original one it had a background. The idea was there's the Earth, and and there's this idea of we want to disarm all nuclear. Uh, warheads, no nuclear uh, warhead activity in earth, on earth. And so there was this campaign. Now, I don't know a lot of people that use uh, semaphore flag signals. I'm sure that would have died out. Uh, but of course, the hippies in the 60s and 70s made it go viral. Um, they used it in a different way, the idea for their piece. Uh, and now it takes on a whole new idea of peace, especially when it's multicolored. 
And we still have it to this day. Over 60 years later, there's still this idea of, uh, of peace. Now, some don't like that symbol and the way it is, and they've tried to make their own peace symbol. I don't know if you've, uh, if you've ever seen this one. This is my peace sign, um, which in this crowd, I think most of you are laughing because you can resonate with that. Uh, but the idea is everyone has some idea of peace, but they're, just, they're not all the same. The ideas for peace are, are different. And uh, so it begs the question, what is your idea of peace? When I mention the word peace, what comes to mind? And when you think about what comes to mind, ask yourself, what kind of peace did Jesus bring 2,000 years ago? What is this, as Isaiah 9, 6 would tell us, the Prince of Peace what kind of peace did the Prince of Peace bring? And when the angels said or sang this praise to God, uh, peace on earth, what was the idea of peace? Well, you could study all the ways in which the Bible uses the word peace. In the Old Testament, there's one most common word for peace. A lot of you would know it. It's shalom. The word, it's a greeting. They even use it as a greeting, like peace to you, uh, well-being, prosperity to you. The word shalom, it's used 236 times in the Old Testament. And when they translated that language into the Greek language, the language that the New Testament's written in, uh, they translated it as the Greek word irene, where we get the, the name Irene. Irene for a girl, that name is a, like a woman of peace, a peaceful woman. And it's used irene. What's interesting about the New Testament word that's used for peace, that New Testament word is used 91 times in, and it's used in every single one of the letters of the New Testament except for 1 John. Can you believe it? Why didn't John not include it? I almost want to go back and be like, John, dude, this would have been awesome. All 27 letters, you used it in your gospel. You used it in the other two very short letters. You couldn't use it in 1 John. But the word was used so commonly because that idea of peace was so important to them. So if you were to look throughout the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, you would come away with three categories for peace. There are three different kinds of peace that are mentioned in the Bible. And you can see from these different kinds of peace what kind of peace Jesus meant to bring when he came 2,000 years ago. What does it mean, peace on earth, which is a great question. So we're going to look at it in these three categories. I'll just tell you on the, on the front end. It's peace with God, peace from God, and the peace of God. That's how I'm going to describe them. I'll give it extra description, but there are three kinds of peace that's represented in the Bible, and that's what we're going to walk through. So the first kind of peace that Jesus came to bring was peace with God. We call this eternal peace. This is the kind of peace that we have with him, the salvation sense of peace. Paul reminds us that Jesus came to bring peace through his blood, which we'll talk about. In, in Colossians chapter 1, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, him being Jesus, and through him to reconcile everything to himself. Reconciliation speaks of brokenness. There was a brokenness, a separation between us and God, and Jesus came to reconcile us, to reconnect us back to God 
when he came. And whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, his blood shed on the cross. It's the reason why Christmas had to happen. Um, I remember uh, back when I was around Detroit, Michigan, I was part of an addiction recovery ministry. And in this kind of ministry, I dealt with a lot of uh, people that knew nothing about church life. Uh, they, they knew nothing about the culture of Christianity or church. Um, in this small group, I had a few truck drivers and some blue-collar blue workers. They were great, great guys, great to be around. And they're, uh, they've repented of their sins. They've put their faith in Christ. But they're so new to the faith, they, they know close to nothing. So we're talking, and I remember one of the guys, I even remember his face, how shocked he was when I was telling him about Christmas and Easter because he's like, listen, I, why do we do Christmas and Easter? I said, really, there are two holidays that represent the same thing. And he's like, no. I'm like, dude, buckle up. Listen to this. Christmas is the celebration we have for the birth of Jesus. But no one would care about that. That would mean nothing if it weren't for Easter. The only reason why we celebrate Christmas is because of Easter. Easter represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Him dying on the cross, and that's the only reason why He came. You can't celebrate one without the other because they don't make sense one without the other. Technically, they both represent the same thing, and that's the coming of Christ. The whole reason why He came. I, so I asked them a question. I said, now... Can God die? No, no, God cannot die. Can you hurt God? Well, you can hurt his feelings if you hurt someone he loves, you know, yeah. But can you hurt God? No, no, no. That's why Christmas. The only way for God to make us right with him and to reconcile us back to himself, to forgive our sins, he can't just sweep our sins under the rug and be like, well, you know, they're just human. You know, he can't do that. He's, he's just. There has to be a punishment for sin. Well, God can't die. You can't punish God unless God becomes a man, unless he puts on vulnerable flesh and in that flesh suffers and dies. The whole reason for Christmas was actually Easter. We celebrate Christmas in a great way and we should, but it makes no sense and it means nothing without Easter because that was the purpose of Christmas was actually Easter. So God, when Jesus came to bring peace, he came to bring peace with God, and it didn't, it began with Christmas morning, but it did not make any, there was no change Christmas morning until Easter. That was the reason he came. The reason he was born was to die. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we're justified meaning we're righteous before God, we've been made right before God. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The way that we receive this peace with God is by faith in Him. So if you're out there, Christmas is such a wonderful season, but the reason why we celebrate Christmas is because it reminds us of the peace that God brought between us and Him when Jesus came so that He could suffer and die. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus meaning you've never turned from your sins and says, say in your heart, I believe him, 
I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he came to the earth 2,000 years ago. I believe he died on the cross. I believe they buried him. He was as dead as dead could be. And through the power of God, he raised him from the dead. And he proved to be who he was. He overcame death. He conquered death. He defeated sin. He came to be the sacrifice for us. That faith, that turning from your sin and saying, I don't want my sin anymore. I want him. My faith is in him. That is how you have peace with God, eternal peace. Now, why is this peace brought through the blood? You know, in Colossians 1, making peace through his blood. Well, this points back to the five great sacrifices that God gave the people of God through Moses. If you know the story of uh, Moses, you know, Moses came around the 15th century B.C., but there was a history before him. You know, God created everything, the heavens and the earth. He created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. They sinned. They rebelled against him. They disobeyed him. And they had one commandment, one law. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from that tree is the only law. And it wasn't even a difficult law because there were lots of trees in the garden. So many other trees full of fruit. And they were suspicious of God because being tempted, the woman was tempted, Adam gave in. They rebelled against God, partly passively and actively, rebelling against Him, disobeying Him. And from that fall, we call it the fall in the Old Testament, from that disobedience, brokenness uh, has continued through mankind. God, uh, you know the story of He sent an angel and a sword to block the way to the Garden of Eden. Do you know why? Because he didn't want them to eat of the tree of life. They would continue living on in sin. And God does not want us to continue living in sin. It's, It's important that the wages of sin is death. That needs to die. We don't need to continue on in sin. And so from that point on, God developed, uh, picked Abraham as a man, picked him as a man, began a family, Then it became 70 Israelites. They ended up living in captivity for 400 years because God wanted to make them into his own people. And then after 400 years, God uses Moses to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them out of slavery. They go to Mount Sinai. You have the Ten Commandments. That's Genesis and Exodus. Then you get to the third book of the Old Testament called Leviticus. Leviticus is how do we use this tabernacle? How are we supposed to be holy? How are we supposed to socially interact? How are we supposed to live as God's people now? Because now there are two million people out in the desert. How are we supposed to live as his people? And the book of Leviticus begins with five great sacrifices. It goes from Leviticus 1 to Leviticus 7. They get mentioned again later, but that's the beginning of Leviticus. God gives them these five great sacrifices because even though they belonged to him and he rescued them, He wanted to instill in them this idea, you need forgiveness for your sins. And so he gave them five great sacrifices. You have the burnt offering, the grain offering, or the Thanksgiving offering, or the meal offering. That's number two, the grain offering. The peace offering, what's also called the fellowship offering. Then you have the sin offering and the guilt offering. You know what's really interesting of the order that Leviticus mentions where Paul uses it? It's not in chronological order. Of these five sacrifices, guess which sacrifice comes first? The sin offering. Number four comes first. 
The first offering that you are to bring as a person of God, which gets explained later, is actually the sin offering. But God didn't want to start the sacrificial system with sin. He wanted to start it with the burnt offering. Of the five offerings, number four and five, sin and guilt offering in that on the screen, those are the two offerings that do not bring a sweet aroma to the Lord. They're dirty. It's sin. Number four, the sin offering, you bring a, a, a bull, it's, it has to be a male, or you could bring a sheep or a goat, or you could bring a bird if you're, really, if you're poor. God wanted to make a way for everyone to be able to give an offering. Sin offering is for unintentional sin. It begins with unintentional sin, and then it goes to intentional sins. Your personal sins. The second kind of offering is the guilt offering. After you deal with the sin offering, you give the guilt offering. It's, it's almost identical to the sin offering, except when you read in chapters 5 through 7 of the guilt offering, uh, it adds restitution. Okay, if you've sinned against your neighbor, you have to be made right with them. That's the guilt offering. So you have to make reparations, you rest, uh, restoration. You have to give back a fourth of some things, a third of other. You, you have to make things right. It's like God made it very clear, even in the Old Testament. Listen, if you want to be made right with me, you got to be right with one another. It, it's not enough to be like, oh God, I'm so sorry. Okay, you're forgiven, no big deal. No. If you've committed a sin against your neighbor, if you've hurt your brother Offer your sin offering to me. You need to be now go to your brother and make it right. You do what it takes to make it right. That's the guilt offering. Then after the guilt offering, you have what's called the burnt offering. This is the offering that that represents you are fully committed to the Lord. That's why it's called the burnt offering. It's the one offering where they burn the whole thing to a crisp. You know, have you ever been to those holiday parties where you were really angry that someone was doing the barbecue because you're like, he's gonna burn it. He's gonna burn it. Steaks need to be medium rare. Everyone knows this. I don't want him cooking it. You know, the burnt offering was the one offering that was completely toasted. They, they even had a, and they always used the grain offering with the burnt offering too. They would, uh, and then in Numbers you have the, it's, it's, it's in your Bibles as the drink offering. It's not a separate offering. They added wine uh, to the offerings. But you would even add wine to the offering and it's part of the grain offering. That's what it is. Uh, but you would add it to the burnt offering and the whole thing would be burnt. No one's benefiting from it. It is just ashes. And then you had to take the ashes and take them outside of the camp, not inside of the camp, and throw them into a designated good place that wasn't considered unclean but was still outside of the camp because that was the burnt offering. You are wholly devoted to the Lord. So if you think of Romans, maybe Romans chapter 12, where it's like you are a living sacrifice, Holy unto the Lord. That's the burnt offering. Your whole life is committed to Him. And then after the burnt offering, you have the grain offering. This is the only one of the five that doesn't require an animal or blood sacrifice. It's just think it's all food. It's all grain and frankincense, a little, you know, spice that represents prayer. But it's a thanksgiving offering. It's where we get the Hebrew word for lifting your hands. You know, this was in the 15th century. By the 1000 BC, uh, King David in his Psalms wrote hundreds of times, lift up your hands to the Lord in praise. They would do this because back when the tabernacle started, the priest would lift up the grain offering as a thanksgiving offering, and the men would lift their hands and say, thank you, Lord. Because the grain offering represented their labor. 
It represented their crops, uh, like the first fruits. If you ever got, you know, crops from the Lord, you're like, thank you, Lord. All this is from you. You provide for us. And you could give a grain offering whenever you wanted. That's why it was also called a Thanksgiving offering. Any day of the week, I don't know about any day of the week, at least six days out of the week, you could go and bring your grain offering to the temple or to the tabernacle. And so the tabernacle with these five offerings, only one wasn't blood, it was like a slaughterhouse continually every day, people bringing their offerings, either sin offering, guilt offering, burnt offering, uh, grain offering. And then after the grain offering, he skips. This order is very important and it's intentional. After the grain offering is the peace offering. It's the fellowship offering. It was the one that they celebrated. Once you were made right with God and right with your brother and you're totally committed to him and you're grateful in all things and what the Lord has provided, you have the peace offering. The peace that you have with God. Fellowship offering, some call it. Some of your English Bibles call it fellowship. The reason why is not because it's not the peace offering. It's because that was the offering and the custom where, hey, we have fellowship with one another. We are one people belonging to God. What a great offering. So, I, I gave you the five great offerings, and they're, and they're throughout the Old Testament, and they're used in the festivals, which you read later in Leviticus. The reason why I give these to you is the peace offering, even though it's mentioned third, is the last offering. And it is a blood offering. And it's the only blood offering you can use a female. It's the only blood offering that doesn't have to be a male. It could be a female. And the reason why is God wanted everyone to know, you can have peace with me. And so in the New Testament, when, when Paul writes about male and female, and no Gentile, Jew and Gentile, and this idea that God has brought us into peace and he's broken down hostility, he's referring to something that the Jews, the Gentiles wouldn't get it all. The Jews would understand this intimately God has brought us together to be with him. He has reconciled us by the peace of his blood. He was the sin offering, the guilt offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering. And so that's what they would have thought. So Jesus came to bring peace between us and God so that we can have fellowship with him, but not just with him. You know, God wants us to have fellowship with one another. That's the guilt offering. That's the restoration. Make it right. Be, good. Be at peace with one another. Uh, Paul references this in uh, Romans, multiple places in Romans, but Romans 14, 17 through 19, I'll give you. He writes, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He mentions peace. He's just been writing about welcome one another. Don't judge one another. Welcome one another in fellowship. Yeah, some people don't eat this and don't drink that and do all that. That's fine. Don't be a stumbling block. Welcome one another. The Lord has welcomed you. So it's this people over preferences type uh, principle that he brings in Romans. Don't fight. Don't be hostile to one another. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Pursue it. Don't ignore it. Don't downplay it. Pursue what promotes peace, what builds up one another. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, For he, speaking of Jesus, for he is our peace, 
who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, just background in Ephesians 2, so we always think of the, you know, we're saved by grace through faith, uh, four good works, we think of that, you know, 8 through 10. Well, right after he talks about our salvation, he says, and don't forget, Jew and Gentile, you are no longer separated. You guys are one body, one people. You do not have to fight because of cultural differences. It's so hard to explain today uh, the cultural and not just racist division that was present between the Jews and the Gentile. Don't just think racism, think cultural pride and bias. The Jews, I mean, just imagine being a, a male Jew. Ever since you were a kid, you would go to the temple. Every year, three times a year, the Passover, the Pentecost, the, the, the tabernacles. Every year, the three, those three festivals, you would go as a family to the temple and you would offer your offering and you would sing the Psalms of Ascent and you would have such rich cultural uh, connection. You would go when, you're, when a son was born, which is such a blessing to a family, and on the eighth day you would circumcise him. And that's what you and your dad and your granddad and your great-granddad and your great-great-granddad and everyone in your whole family line for 1,500 years. Imagine having a history that goes back a culture that goes back 1,500 years. And then Jesus comes and says, you don't have to do that. What do you mean you don't have to do that? That's the law of Moses. That's God's law. No, you don't understand. I came to fulfill the law. You no longer have to be circumcised to, be, to belong to God, to be his child. It was so foreign to them, they couldn't imagine it. Now, if you did get saved as a Jewish man, you had times in your living room in your katulama, your, your house back then, you had times in this place where you are now having to debate whether you teach your Jewish son, uh, you don't have to be circumcised to have faith in Christ? No way. No way. You're, you're going to tell him, no, I mean, you don't have to, but you should. Why? Because of culture. They were so culturally ingrained, it was so difficult for them to accept the gospel, to accept faith the way it was meant to have, to, for there to be no hostility between Jew and Gentile, someone who's next to you that doesn't look like you, talk like you, dress like you, act like you. It was so difficult for them that they separated. And God didn't want them to separate. He says, for he is our peace, who made both groups one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in... He wanted peace between the two. To be one man, to be one body, one people, brothers... I am your brother, even though you look and act nothing like me. I am your brother. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross in which he put the hostility to death. One body talking about the body of Christ. One body, Jew and Gentile together, considered as one church. You are one people. You are my people in faith through the shed blood of Jesus. That was his idea. 
That's why Paul's signature, and when he ends his letters, he begins and ends with grace and peace. Grace and peace to you. He wanted there to be grace and peace to them. And there's other verses we could go into that. But, but the idea of the New Testament is Jesus came to bring relational peace as well. Peace from God. Peace with one another. Even those that don't look like you and act like you and they're different. So this was the kind of peace God brought. But there's an issue. Not all of it stuck the way that Jesus intended. Uh, and when I say Jesus intended, I meant the way that people thought, not that Jesus intended. It did not stick the same way. Some of them thought, okay, we're going to have peace. We're just going to be at peace with one another and there's no differences. And Jesus made it very clear the idea of peace that he had would not be world peace. It wouldn't be what we think as global peace, the bumper stickers coexist. That wasn't the kind of peace that Jesus was imagining. And he makes that clear in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus says these shocking words. If you were in that audience and you were really thinking critically, this would cause you to scratch your head. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. Now, if I were there, just being honest and open, I'd be sitting there going, now wait a minute. You're the Prince of Peace. You came to bring peace. You've been talking about peace. The angels saying that you were bringing peace on earth, it feels shocking that you would say, don't assume I came to bring peace on earth. He says, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. These were hard words. It would cause, it causes me, I want, I want to understand what he's teaching. If I were there that day, I would have been sitting there, questions too, too many to count. He came to bring the sword and to divide. What does he mean by that? Well, he explains that. This is also in Luke chapter 12, I think. But he explains that here in Matthew in verse 37. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What Jesus was making clear is he, he did come to bring peace, but he himself is a dividing line. He divides even households, you know, man, a man against his father, which in this culture and even today, if you have a good father you love, you don't want to be divided against your father. Jesus said no. There is a dividing line between you and your father if your father does not have faith in me and you do. It's not possible to have Jesus and to not have the persecution and the division that comes between you and non-believers. There will not be peace between a believer and a non-believer. Um, the whole reason why, you know, Paul writes about this, don't be unequally yoked, speaking of marriage. The idea is a believer should not be married to a non-believer because they cannot be as one because of their faith in Christ. That, that is not his intention. He doesn't want that. There, there is a division. Jesus is a dividing line between people. A 
uh, a daughter against her mother. Now, God doesn't want there to be hostility, a daughter against his mother, but he made it clear, if you follow me, if you put your faith in me, you're going to have to love me in such a way that if your own child does not follow me, you do not accept that as in that's good. You guys are divided by faith. It doesn't mean you're hostile to one another. It doesn't mean you hate one another. It doesn't mean you're mean or anything like that. It doesn't mean you can't have fellowship and love each other. That's not what it means. It just means there is going to be a division between, a, between you and your loved one if you have faith and they do not. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, now that one's actually not hard to believe. That, that happens anyway. But, uh, but you get the idea. A household will be divided. So you're not going to find peace relationally everywhere. That's not what Jesus meant when he, when he came. As, as a matter of fact, if you looked up the 91 references of peace in the New Testament, whenever it speaks of peace between you and someone else, the peace from God, it always refers to people within the church. Always. Every single occurrence. It's between brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not between uh, you and a non-believer. Now, Paul does write, in his letter to Timothy, that he wants us to leave peaceable lives, quiet lives, maybe your translation says. In that, in that instance, what he's saying is, you want the gospel to go forth, you don't necessarily want persecution so you can't share the gospel. That's the idea. Let's pray that God gives us open doors to share the gospel. But the idea of relational peace is never mentioned between you and non-believers, which is really something for us to meditate on and to think about. God never promised peace between you and other people that don't believe in Him. Some of your biggest heartaches may be the lack of peace between you and someone you love dearly that's not a believer. And, um, and, and you should pray for that person. As a matter of fact, at the end of the service, we're going to pray for anyone that comes to mind. You pray in your seats quietly to yourself. Whoever needs the peace of God and peace with God, they need that peace that we're going to pray for them. But you won't find this kind of peace that Jesus came to bring with every relationship. But he did want you to have inner peace, which is the third category of peace that's mentioned in the Bible. That's the peace of God, this, this idea of inner peace. In John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus is, you know, you have the upper room discourse. You have this time that Jesus spent with his disciples before he was about to be arrested before he was going to die, before they were going to betray him. He knew that they were about to have one of the most difficult moments of their entire lives. You know, Peter was going to be so discouraged because he, he denied Christ three times that he just went back to fishing. He just went back to a secular job. He, he figured, it's over. I'm done with. I can't be used. And, and Jesus had to have a personal encounter with him to get him back in the game. But he, Jesus knew that his followers were going to have one of the worst nights of their entire lives, he tells them, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. It's the peace of God. It's an inner peace. It's a supernatural peace. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled or fearful. Um, it's interesting that Jesus was telling his close friends, I'm about to leave you and I'm about to die. Which I can't imagine a relationship in which that's not the worst news that you could hear. I'm about to leave you and I'm about to die. 
And in that same conversation that he has with them, but I'm leaving you my peace. And back in September, um, we pre- I preached on Philippians chapter 4, and we talked about disarming uh, anxiety. You know, if any of you have ever been anxious before, statistically 80% of you have um, this week. So you, you know what anxiousness is, and, and when we're anxious, we need a supernatural peace. And uh, we looked at Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, and in that passage, uh, there were three descriptions of God's peace, that inner peace he mentions. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's the peace of God. It's a supernatural peace. And it surpasses all understanding, and it's found in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus. So letting God's peace protect your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus means that you're not finding or looking for peace in the natural. It's supernatural. You're not looking for it in the natural. It's also not logical. It surpasses all understanding. It's not a logical peace. It's not like, oh, of course I'm at peace because such and such happened. My problem is resolved. It's not logical and it's not secular. There's no remedy or cure to give you this kind of peace. There is a peace that you can have based on circumstances, right? We've all experienced that. I don't know if you've ever won the lotto in your dream. I had a dream one time where I won the lottery, which I don't play, and I think it's gambling's just a waste of money and time. Uh, but for some reason, I dreamt that I played the lottery, and I won, and I had like millions of dollars. This is so fleshly of me. I was pumped. I was so excited in my dream. I woke up happy, and then immediately was like, Dude, that was just a dream. You ever been let down? You have a good dream, and then you wake up and be like, Man, that, would, that was a good dream. I would have been happy with those circumstances. That is a peace, but not the peace of God. That's circumstantial peace. It's fading. It's quick. It's really hard to keep. You barely ever get it. Uh, that's not the kind of peace that Jesus came to bring. He came to bring the supernatural peace of God. In the Christmas song, uh, O Holy Night, that we sang earlier, one of my, also one of my favorite Christmas songs, I just recently listened to King's College, the choir sing O Holy Night. It was really uh, beautiful. One of the lines um, in the last verse, actually the last verse begins this way, and uh, it just really caught my attention. In the, in the last verse of O Holy Night, it's, Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. His good news is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Uh, He did teach us to love one another, and it is a good news of peace. So I thought we could end by praying for those in our lives that maybe not have peace, not just lost people, but even saved loved ones. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring to mind anybody that you can pray for, that you love and care about, but that you know does not have the peace of God or maybe even peace with God. And uh, let's take a moment to pray for them. And then I'll end with Aaron's blessing out out of number six. Father, we're so grateful for the peace that you came to bring. 
And you know the people that are on our hearts. We pray for them. They need your peace. They need peace with you. They need peace from you. They need your personal peace that you give to those that know you and put their faith in you. So we just lift them up to you. They, we know they won't find true peace this season outside of you. Would you have mercy on them? Would you bring them out of the pit of despair or anxiety? Would you bring them out of the blindness of the world of temptation and sin? We pray the prayer that you prayed for Peter. Father, would you not let Satan sift them like wheat? They have no hope outside of you. They, they need your angels to minister to them, to fight for them from spiritual warfare. Would you bring them that supernatural peace? And we pray together uh, for one another. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Father, would you bless them and keep them? Would you make your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them? Would you lift up your countenance toward them? Would you look on them with favor and bring them peace? We need your supernatural blessing. We need your love. We need your strength that empowers us to love one another. And we need your help with peace. Would you give us peace this Christmas season? We love you because you first loved us. And... Uh, we just lay it all before you. In Jesus' name, amen.